You're listening to the Passion Daily Podcast. This week, we're excited to bring you excerpts from Pastor Ben Stewart's newest book, Rest in War. It's our prayer that these moments together will help you learn how to struggle well, fight for progress, and to know the one who has fought for you. If today's content moves you, make sure to go and grab a copy of Rest in War wherever books are sold. Chapter 1, The Survival Guide Oh God, we are so stupid. These were the first words of my friend Ben's prayer. I don't remember his next few lines. I wasn't really paying attention. My eyes kept scanning the snow-covered mountains under our perch high atop Long's Peak. As we sat there near the highest point in the Rocky Mountains, entirely depleted physically, I wondered, how long until our friends down below file a missing persons report? Can a rescue helicopter reach this altitude? The only thing I knew for certain was that I could not conceive of a way to get down that mountain using my own internal resources. How did I let myself end up here? It had started out so well. I had joined a team of college students from around the country in a summer-long internship with a ministry in Denver, Colorado. Early in our trip, my new friend Ben asked if I wanted to climb this massive 14,000-foot mountain with him. I said sure, and we immediately began to train. We resolved to summit Long's Peak one month later. When the day arrived, our ascent began well. We bounded up the trail, passing lesser hikers, making great time. We leapt through the boulder field and arrived ahead of schedule at the critical transition point known as the Keyhole. The name came from the rock formation's shape. Erosion had created a rock archway that, from a distance, resembled a keyhole. But this alone did not account for the title. This waypoint on the trail also represented a critical juncture in the journey, where the path began winding around the backside of the mountain, a part previously not visible from the trail. The trail also narrowed to a sliver of a path a few feet above a precipitous cliff. One false move there, and you'd disappear over a blind edge, careening into a distant valley below. On the day Ben and I were hiking, the keyhole marked another critical change in our journey, the presence of snow. Fortunately for us, a mountaineer had been there before us. We could see a set of footprints in the deep snow and singular holes in the snowbank on the high side of the mountain, where no doubt a hiking stick had been used. We carefully placed our feet in the footprints and our fingers in the holes as we picked our way across the ledge. After a few perilous yards along the cliff's edge, the path turned steeply upward, ascending up the snow-covered mountainside. The footprints continued, and we turned to climb them like a ladder, hugging the side of the mountain. At this moment, something suddenly began to shift for Ben and me. My internal energy gauge began to plummet. My lungs struggled for air, and my limbs, in addition to being wet and cold from the snow, began to feel heavy. Each heave of my body upward required an enormous expenditure of energy. At the midway point, I glanced up at Ben and watched his head collapse with exhaustion into the snow. He was feeling it too. But this was not the moment to stop. So we heaved ourselves up several feet, finally reaching the thin, rocky path above. From there, we followed the marked route around a corner, only to find another corner ahead. And another, and another. And after what felt like an eternity, we rounded yet another corner and saw before us another steep incline through the snow. At the sight of it, Ben dropped to the ground. I half-heartedly tried to spur him on, but then crumpled down next to him on the trail. We were exhausted, depleted, nauseous, and stuck. 
And after a few moments of listening to the wind whistle through the mountain range below, our prayer acknowledging our stupidity began. Then it happened. For a split second, while Ben was praying and I was looking around in desperation, I saw a human head pop out from behind a boulder. It was so fast, I wondered if I'd imagined it. Am I hallucinating? Has it gotten that bad? Our prayer ended. We sat in silence and watched the world from above. And then from behind another boulder, the head arrived, attached to a person. The mountain man made his way over to us and struck up a conversation. Hey, guys, he shouted. His high-volume positivity, a stark contrast to our complete despair. We grunted a response. Undaunted by our lack of enthusiasm, he continued, Great day to hike! You guys been to the top yet? Then, without waiting for us to answer, he surveyed us briefly and remarked, Wait a second. You're the college guys who came up here without equipment. We heard about you! We're in awe of you guys! You're crazy! He then returned to his original question, You been to the top? I responded by telling him we had not and were not planning to. He found this to be unbelievable. You have to go. Come on, guys. And at this point, I could tell that his relentlessly upbeat attitude was starting to grate on Ben. So I stood up on my wobbly legs and sidebarred our conversation. I whispered to him, we're not doing well. We are totally exhausted. There's no way we can go any further. And my admission of our frailty changed his demeanor. I remember him staring down at my hands. I had them wrapped in my soaking wet sleeves, trying to get them warm. Wait a minute, he replied. Then he set down his pack and produced two pairs of mittens. Well, mittens is really not quite the right word. They're coverings for your hands, but they extended up to the elbow and had multiple straps that could bind them tightly to your forearm. Put these on, he said, handing them to us. And Ben and I eagerly put on these mittens and felt the exquisite relief as warmth returned to our fingers. The mountain man continued to parent us. Well, first things first, gentlemen, you're breathing wrong. And that surprised us. Of all our problems on the mountain, knowing how to breathe did not seem to be one of them. I'd always considered breathing to be an involuntary action that did not require conscious management. He noted our looks of skepticism that implied, I think we know how to breathe, man. I'll never forget his next words. He told us, you're in a new environment. The atmosphere's changed. You have to adapt if you want to survive. The atmosphere's changed. I think about that moment often as I survey the cultural landscape of our world today. Shifts in the atmosphere of society have had a profound impact on our vibrancy and the way we interact with God, each other, and even ourselves. Because these changes are simply in the atmosphere, we can't always see them, but we feel them. And recent data backs this up. There's something about modern life that does not promote human flourishing. Anxiety and depression, particularly among young people in the United States, has been consistently on the rise since 2008. Recent data collected from a joint study by the U.S. Census Bureau and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention indicate this. During August 2020 through February 2021, the percentage of adults with recent symptoms of an anxiety or a depressive disorder increased from 36.4% to 41.5%. Increases were largest among adults aged 18 to 29 years. The increased political and philosophical polarization in our society incites fear, uncertainty, and anger. The constant comparison of our lives with others' pristine presentations on social media fills many with discouragement. 
And the irresistible lure of our screens means we're constantly soaking our minds in this polarization and comparison which feeds our stress and despair. In the atmosphere of anxiety, the traditional buffers from stress have been removed. One professor of psychology at San Diego State University reported that from 2000 to 2015, the number of high school students who got together daily with their friends dropped by 40%. Cigna, a global health services company, reported that loneliness has reached epidemic proportions in the United States as people of all ages and backgrounds struggle to find a sense of belonging. Among their findings... Only half of Americans say they have meaningful in-person interactions on a daily basis. In the atmosphere of relentless restlessness and shallow social connections, addiction has risen to new heights. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, and incessant scrolling on our screens have all become habits to distract us from stress. However, rather than alleviating our problems, they've created more problems and have only increased the anxiety and isolation we've attempted to escape. When you think about all that, it's hardly surprising that in 2019, Gallup recorded the lowest levels of happiness in the United States in their 70-plus years of researching well-being. We aren't looking so good. In the relatively safest time for human beings to exist on the planet, we find ourselves disoriented and disturbed. Like Ben and me on that mountainside, we're exhausted, discouraged, and uncertain how to address our situation. We need to realize that the atmosphere's changed, and we must adapt if we want to survive. So what's the answer? What do we do next? The path toward rest for the soul. We need a guide to emerge upon the mountain who will equip us, teach us, and show us how to move forward. Centuries ago, the prophet Jeremiah looked out upon a generation that felt unsure of where to turn in the midst of crisis and uncertainty. And he declared, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 6, 16. Many are standing at a critical crossroads, asking where the good way is. And in this book, I want to show you the ancient path that leads to rest for our souls. I started my ministry career with an unbounded zeal and optimism. I was going to use my gifts to do great things for God. But within the first five years, I watched five men I knew personally drop out of ministry because of moral failures. Then over the next few years, I watched men I had patterned my life after take extended leaves of absence because of emotional burnout, discouragement, or depression. My goal had been to succeed, but I began to realize that a big part of success was figuring out how to survive. As I crossed from my 20s into my 30s, I appeared to have everything together. I had a great marriage. I was leading a large and vibrant ministry on the campus of a major university. I had a steady income, career success, and strong relationships. I was charging up the mountain of life. All this was true. But it was also true that wounds from my parents' divorce, struggles from my past, and my personal insecurities were along for the ride. And the higher I ascended in ministry, the more depleted I felt. External setbacks, discouragements, whispers of comparison, and technological shifts exposed many of my internal weaknesses. The atmosphere had shifted, and I lacked the internal resources to keep moving forward. 
So for the past 20 years of my life, I have passionately sought out strategies for surviving and thriving, not only in ministry, but in life. And to be sure, I needed encouragement, but more than inspiration, I've needed information. What were the survival skills that would keep me fueled and moving forward? In the searching, I discovered what many before me have as well. Admitting you need help is the first step toward victory. Humility is the doorway to wisdom. As I listened to the voices of mentors, teachers, friends, and perhaps most of all, the theologian John Owen, I began to assemble for myself a compendium of the strategies and structures of the spiritual life. Now, I want to share them with you. Your personal guide for the journey. When Jesus looked at the crowds in his day, he saw women and men who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9.36. They were relentlessly bombarded with trouble and lacked the resources to defend themselves. But Jesus did not shake his head or wag a finger at them and scold them. Rather, he had compassion for them and taught them many things, verse 36. Most of us feel distraught by the constant uncertainty and anxiety surrounding us and by the fear, lust, pride, and doubt within us. Often, we don't know how to manage any of it. We feel helpless. The good news is, we have a guide. He looks at us not with eyes of condemnation, but with eyes of compassion. And he has many things to teach us if we have ears to listen. What you'll find in the pages ahead is not a scolding for your struggles, nor is it an extended motivational speech to try harder. I want to bring you to the Good Shepherd who can lead us in a day of trouble. I want to show you the ancient path that leads to rest for your souls. I want to equip you to adapt and advance towards your God-given destiny. Thanks for listening to the Passion Daily Podcast. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast wherever you stream it. You can also subscribe to the Passion City Church and Passion City Church DC podcasts for our full messages every Monday.